Now, on Lord's Day 3, the previous Lord's Day, we learned about our horrific plunge into sin. And I say our horrific plunge because in some ways we were there in the garden with Adam and Eve. More on that in the sermon. Now, in Lord's Day 4, we have plucked up the foolish courage to question God. And just to clarify, though in the sermon I am critical of the questions of Lord's Day 4, that doesn't mean that they are questions that shouldn't be asked. These are our questions, however prideful and sinful they might be. And we need even our sinful questions answered by God. Let's read Lord's Day 4. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No, for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He's terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment both now and eternally. As he has declared, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. After the sermon, without further announcement, we will sing our Amen song of hymn 72, the stanzas 1 and 5. May God bless the preaching of the truths of his word. Beloved in Christ our Lord, one of the most popular biblical phrases that has become well known even in our secular society is Psalm 8 verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and infants. And now the meaning has become different. As we sang this evening, this line is followed by, you have established strength or you have ordained praise. But over time, as it transitioned into the secular society, the meaning has shifted slightly to have the meaning that you get the most truth out of children because they don't have a filter for their mouth yet. And this is nowhere more true than in a story that I heard a few weeks ago. This is how it went. A young child, about four years old, had been mean to his friends. He had said some bad words. He had even hit them, and he was about to be punished. This boy's mother wanted him to be sure that her son knew why he was being punished. So she sat him down, looked at him in the eye, and said, You know that being mean to your friends is wrong, right? You know that that's a sin. And the child looked up at his mother he sighed a big sigh and said, Yes, I know, but mommy, some days I just love to sin. Some days I just love to sin. Out of the mouth of babes and infants. This child, at four years old, is more honest than any one of us. This boy said the quiet part out loud. We speak of falling into sin. We speak of being caught in a particular sin and it's true, but that isn't the full story. Sometimes we, we do fall into sin, but other times we just plunge headlong. We see something we want, we know that God has forbidden it, and we don't care. There are some days, congregation, when, when we, when, when I, just love to sin. 
It's important for us to recognize this in ourselves. Recognize this weakness that it's not just a weakness of the will. It's not just a lack of strength, but it's a weakness of our heart. It's a flaw. It's a twisting, a warping of our affections. We love the wrong stuff. It's important to recognize this so that we don't get overly angry with our first parents, Adam and Eve. Because we do this far too often, don't we? Come on, Adam and Eve, you had one job. If it was me in the garden that day, but if it was you in the garden that day, you would have made exactly the same decision. None of us are any better. Now, should we be angry with Adam and Eve? Sure, absolutely. They, they sinned, and they took all of us down with them. We can have anger towards them. We can be disappointed. We can mourn over their sin as long as we are equally angry, equally disappointed, equally mournful over our own sins. We have to stop just passing the buck to others, whether to those who sin against us or to our first parents, and, and we have to stop crying out to God, it's not fair. This evening, we will examine, first of all, why God's justice is fair, and then we will see why we don't want what is fair. First of all, why God's justice is fair. Now, our Lord's Day this evening begins with these words, But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? Now cast your mind back a few minutes to when you heard these words for the first time today. How did you feel about this question? Maybe, maybe you felt good about it. It's so nice that the Catechism is asking my questions. After all, we, we learned in Lord's Day 2 that God requires perfect love of us and that we aren't able to love perfectly, but rather we're inclined naturally to hate. And then we learned in Lord's Day 3 that the sinful inclination towards hatred, it came not because of how we were created, but rather this is what we inherited from our first parents. And so we want to blame our first parents. Punish them, we want to say. It's not our fault, it's their fault. How can you punish us for Adam and Eve's sin? It's not fair. And so we're thankful to the Catechism for speaking our language, for asking our questions. But is this how we should feel when we hear this question? Now, we should have a, a visceral gut reaction, an emotional reaction to these words, but it shouldn't be that of, of comfort. It shouldn't be that of, of a self-righteous reaction. Instead, we should cringe when we hear these words. We should be uncomfortable with them. We should be fearful that we even say them out loud. Because what do these words actually do? What do these words do? I'll read the question again. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? What these words do is, is they are a mortal calling God to appear before a human judgment seat. These words are an attempt to drag the Almighty off of his throne and make him a defendant in a human court. How dare we do this? How dare we take him to court? This is foolishness. This is blasphemy. This is madness. Talking back to the God of the universe, 
the one whose ways are all justice, a God of faithfulness without iniquity, the one who sits enthroned forever, establishing righteousness and justice as the foundation of his throne, the one who day by day judges the world with righteousness. Are you willing to accuse this God of injustice? The thought should make you tremble. The thought should make you cower in fear. The thought should make you, like Job, put your hand over your mouth, refusing to speak anymore. So then, is this the conclusion to the question of God's justice? Silence, uh, a hand over our mouth. Be still and know that I am God. Well, eventually it is. There does come a point where we do have to sit and rest with our incomplete knowledge and incomplete understanding of the justice of the Almighty. But there's a good reason that the Catechism goes on as it does. Our God knows that we are curious. He knows that he's put a desire for justice in our hearts. And he doesn't want to leave us just lost and confused. And so what he's done is he's made the basic outlines of his justice clear. Because, in, and we must note this well, in so many ways, but perhaps most clearly in our God's justice. Our God is different from all of the other gods that are out there in other religions. Our God is not a God like Allah, who the Muslims serve. Because what is Allah? He is, he is a being of pure will, so they say. And what this means that he is a being of pure will. It means that anything he says is right, no matter what. If what he says today contradicts what he said yesterday, who are you to talk back to Allah? If Allah would decide that human sacrifice to idols is proper worship, then it would be. There's no need for wisdom, there's no need for consistency, just pure will, pure power. But that's not how our God is. That is not the justice of Yahweh, the one true God. Yahweh is not capricious. Yahweh is not random. Yahweh is not a being of pure will. Instead, our God is a God of justice. Our God is a God of logic. Think of the beginning of the gospel according to John. In the beginning was the word. That is, the logos, the logic of the universe, holding everything together. Our God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. Everything that our God does is consistent with his character of pure wisdom, pure justice, pure goodness. This is what we read earlier in Belgian Confession, Article 1. And it's, it's this consistence that our catechism speaks of throughout, but especially in this Lord's Day. We read in answer 10, Therefore he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally, as he has declared, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. God will punish because he promised he would. And then we read that his justice requires, that's answer 11, his justice requires. Who is it that's being required here? Well, it's God. God's justice requires him to act in a certain way. God must act in this way or he would not be God. And there are two logical trails that we can go down here to explain God's justice. 
at least as much as we can this, a- this evening, rather, limited by time as well as limited by our human understanding. First of all, there's one of the perfections of our God as outlined in the Belgian Confession. It's that he is immutable. This is a word for the children to remember, for, for all of us to know. This is an important word for us, that God is immutable. That means that our God is never changing. Immutable, always the same. Everything that he is, he will always be. He will never change. He will never be corrupted. He will never be weakened. He is simply the I am. I am who I am. Never more, as though there could be more. Never less, as though someone could take from him. And so when Adam and Eve plunged themselves, and all of us with them, when they plunged themselves into sin, and therefore they changed, God could not change. Adam and Eve became weak. Adam and Eve became slaves to sin. But God did not plunge down with them. God did not become corrupt with them and change himself and change what he required. As human beings, we, we are very fickle. We change with every wind. We, we sway back and forth with every challenge, with every trial. We cry out, unsure if we'll be kept secure this time as we have every time before. That's why I preached as I did this afternoon in the first service, that we have to remember what God has done in our lives. We have to make that testimony to remind ourselves, God saved me before, he will do it again. But God is not forgetful as we are. God can't be like that. He can't be less than himself. Our human condition, it changed at the fall, but but his divine condition, if I may put it like that, it did not sin. He's unstained by our sin, and so his righteous requirements are unchanging. And so, question nine, when viewed in this way, it's even more uncomfortable. It's even more foolish. It's even more insulting. But is God not unjust by not being corrupted by sin as we are? That's what it's saying. Well, by no means. God's God's righteous requirements do not change. And we should be very thankful for that fact. Satan hasn't gotten to him or made him any less than perfectly good and the overflowing fountain of all good. This is that first line of thinking that we can go half the picture of God's justice. But what about that other road that we can go down? What's, what's the other half of the picture? Well, we say... All right, perhaps this is fair for Adam and Eve. They ate the fruit, and none of the juices dripped on God. Okay, fine. But what about us? Why are we held responsible for their sin? How is this justice? Well, here's the other inroad. Another term for children of all ages to be familiar with. This term is federal headship. Federal headship. This means that we are held responsible for Adam's sin because he was our federal head. This means that that Adam was the representative of the entire human race. Not only was Adam a unique individual, handcrafted by God from the dust of the earth, but he was the first human being. He was the head of the human race. He was our first father biologically, but also legally and authoritatively, Adam 
is our head. We can remember it this way. This is a saying, I believe it's from the Puritans, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. All of us sinned in Adam. Even though we weren't historically there, there's only two humans in the garden, neither one of them us, even though we don't have the memory of it, we were there sinning in him, both biologically and legally. We were in the loins of Adam as he sinned, and we were under his authority as he sinned. It's just the same as when a king or a president or a prime minister declares war. The country is at war. Adam, as our first king, in his sin, what he was doing was declaring war against God. And remember, as we heard in the introduction, out of the mouths of babes, remember, before you get irrationally angry with Adam over this, even if you, were, even if you weren't only there in the loins of Adam, even if you weren't only there legally, if you, yourself, right now, were literally Adam, you would have done the exact same thing. There are days when we love to sin. Oh, that's not true, you may protest. That's, that's not a fair comparison. It's, it, it's apples and oranges. Adam was free from sin, and we're not. When we sin today, when we have days when we love to sin, that's the fault of our sinful nature. Yes, well... That would be right, that would be a good excuse if it wasn't quite so wrong. So please turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 will solve this. In Romans chapter 6, we learn why we would have done the exact same thing. From chapter 6, starting at verse 4, and we'll read a few texts from this chapter. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. So what does this mean? This means that we're no longer slaves to sin. Sin may speak. Sin may suggest. Sin may even shout and scream at us. But it's up to us whether we submit to sin or we resist. And there are times when, when we do resist, but does that mean that we do that in our own power? Well, of course not. It, it is Christ himself working in us. Both the death to the old nature as he died and the life to the new nature as he rose. In Romans 6, it, it carries on to further make this point, skipping ahead to verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your instruments to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. 
Sin does not have dominion over us. We are commanded to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. And one more for good measure. Skipping ahead to verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have been committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. We've been set free from sin. And so, beloved, do not complain that Adam had it easier. He could choose whether to sin or not. But we are in exactly the same position. Each and every day, we are confronted with choices. We can choose whether or not to sin. And we may have a sinful nature that whispers in our ear. We say, well, that's not fair. Well, compare that to Eve who had Satan himself whisper in her ear. Or we say, well, I have friends that try to make me join with them in in their sin. Well, Adam had the only other human being on the planet, his wife, whom he loved, convince him to join her in her sin. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Absolutely true. And also, every sin that we commit, we fall again. It's the Garden of Eden all over again. And so is it fair that God's justice remains the same? Is it fair that we're punished for our sins after we fell in Adam? Yes, it is absolutely fair. And what does fairness require for sinners? Well, in a word, hell. You want what's fair? Really? Okay, then here is your one-way ticket to an eternity away from God. I don't think we want what's fair. And so before we complain that it's not fair, even though it is fair, let us recognize that fair isn't actually what we want. It's our second point. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, how quickly the catechism changes tactics here. It's just like us. The catechism is a beautiful, well-written document here. It perfectly encapsulates our thinking and our heart and our questions. When we try the justice tactic, and, and that doesn't really work. When we're appropriately chastised for our attempt to call the Almighty to account... Well, we bluster and we blunder forwards and we say, well, okay then, uh, if not justice, what about mercy? If justice doesn't work, could we use God's mercy for our benefit? And again, just like the first question, it seems so simple. It seems innocuous and innocent, but there's a deep corruption present in it. Question 11 asks, but is God not also merciful? Aha! Checkmate, God. Mercy, you're all about that. So you couldn't possibly punish sins. That's not merciful. And we think we've won. What we're trying to do is we're trying to play God's mercy off of his justice. Which one are you, God? Or are you just or are you merciful? But the answer, beloved, the, the answer is both. And the Catechism answers this expertly. It says God is indeed merciful, but he's also just. He's both. Just as the Belgic Confession says, we all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is only one God who is a simple and spiritual being. Our God is simple. If you've ever read the Belgic Confession before, maybe you've wondered at the wording there. 
our God being simple. This is another word that we should recognize and understand. I think if you're writing these down, if you're keeping track, this is uh, the third definition we have. Truly functioning as a teaching service, as it was originally intended. Our God is simple. And this does not mean that our God is easy to understand. It doesn't mean that our God does not have deep and intelligent thoughts. Not simple in that way. But rather, it means that our God is one. He is unified. Our God is not made up of different parts that all compete against each other. He's simple, or more accurately, our God is simplex. That's the word for that. One piece, not complex, made up of different parts. Our God is not like us. Because we are made up of different parts. Our justice, our sense of justice, is completely separate from our sense of mercy. In our way of doing things, the criminal is punished or he's not. There's either justice or you show the criminal mercy. There's not a third option. There's no way to show both. But God isn't like us. As preacher John Piper so wonderfully put it, he said, The wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath of God while not compromising the righteousness of God. I'll repeat that once more. The wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath of God while not compromising the righteousness of God. Let's unpack this because this right here is the gospel. And a teaching service without the gospel, without Christ, is a teaching service not worth having. So the wisdom of God, that's where we start. God is perfectly wise. God knew, God planned the plan of salvation long before Adam and Eve breathed their first breath. God knew that we would sin, and so he devised a plan. A plan of rescue, a plan of salvation, a plan of wisdom, love, mercy, justice, and righteousness. He knew that we would run away from him, and so he planned his pursuit. This plan began with calling out, where are you? And was finally accomplished when he cried out, it is finished. The plan that began in a garden ended on the cross. The wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God. Because what isn't explicitly stated in this dispute about justice and mercy is love. The wisdom of God devised a way For God to love his wayward and rebellious children. We turned our backs on him. We spat in his face. We ran away, but his love continued. The wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath of God. There is real wrath. Our our catechism has it exactly right when it says he is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. And his justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. And we cannot know, serve, or love only half of God. We can't love his mercy and not his justice. That's not loving the true God as he has revealed himself. We have to love all of him or we love none of him. God has wrath over our sins. 
God has wrath towards sinners. Without Christ, God has constant righteous wrath poured out every day on us. But with Christ, well, the wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to to deliver sinners from the wrath of God while not compromising the righteousness of God. Because of Christ, God's righteous wrath was shown. Because of Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, sinners were delivered from the wrath of God while not compromising his justice. Because that wrath was poured out. That wrath was expressed. Those sins were punished. The justice was satisfied in that sins were shown to be utterly sinful and they were punished and they were destroyed. That's the justice. And the mercy is that they were punished in another. Jesus Christ came. He bore the wrath of God over our sins during his entire life, but especially at the end, especially in Gethsemane, especially on Golgotha. Cursed by God, cursed by man, hanging between heaven and earth, rejected by both. This is what he did for our sins. For the sins that some days we love. He took our curse that we might receive his blessing. That's the only way that we are saved. And just as we close, there is a particularly impactful way that cosmic trade, the great exchange of curse for blessing, is described. You may have heard this before. R.C. Sprawl describes this this exchange by flipping the well-known benediction from number six on its head. That's a blessing we'll hear at the end of the service. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's a blessing. And since a curse is the opposite of a blessing, maybe it's helpful to think of this literally, flipping the blessing on its head. This is what Christ Jesus received. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without mercy. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. This is what Christ experienced on the cross. This is what we deserve for our sins. This is what he actually went through. How blessed is the one who knows what he deserves in Adam and what he receives instead in Christ. When we think of those days when we love to sin, let us fall on our knees and be filled with love instead for the one who took those sins and their punishment upon himself. He was cursed with our curse that we might be blessed with his blessing. The Son became sin so that sinners might become sons. What a blessing! What a gospel! What a Savior! Amen.
Everyone who has this hope from evil purifies himself. That is the hope of the gospel. So let us confess our hope with the words of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed, put to music in hymn one. prepare ourselves to eat the Holy Supper of the Lord. Let us examine what Scripture teaches us about the Lord's Supper with the form that we have for that purpose. If you wish to follow along, I believe it is on the screen, and we'll be using the abbreviated form for the Lord's Supper. If you wish to look it up in your book of praise, that's page 608. Brothers and sisters, The Apostle Paul describes the institution of the Holy Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, the verses 23 through 29. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself." If we are to celebrate the Holy Supper for the strengthening of our faith, we must first examine ourselves. Let everyone consider his sins and accursedness, that he may humble himself before God. Let everyone examine his heart, whether he believes the sure promise of God, that all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is freely given him as his own. 
Finally, let everyone determine whether he intends gratefully to serve the Lord with his entire life and to live in true love and harmony with his neighbor. All who, by the grace of God, repent of their sins, desire to fight against their unbelief, and live according to God's commandments, will certainly be received by God at the table of his Son, Jesus Christ. They may be fully assured that no sin or weakness, which still remains in them against their will, shall keep God from accepting them in grace and granting them this heavenly food and drink. But to all who do not truly grieve over their sins and do not repent of them, we declare that they have no part in the kingdom of Christ. We admonish them to abstain from the Holy Supper, otherwise their judgment will be the heavier. Christ has commanded us to use this supper in remembrance of him. At this table we remember that our Lord was sent by the Father into the world, assumed our flesh and blood, and from the beginning to the end of his life bore for us the wrath of God. He was bound that we might be set free. Though innocent, he was condemned to death that we might be acquitted at the judgment seat of God. He let his blessed body be nailed to the cross and so took our curse upon himself to fill us with his blessing. He was forsaken by God that we might never more be forsaken by him. By his death and the shedding of his blood, he confirmed the new and everlasting covenant of grace when he said, It is finished. Therefore, as often as we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we are reminded and assured of Christ's hearty love towards us. He died on the cross and shed his blood for us, that he might feed our hungry and thirsty souls unto eternal life with his crucified body and shed blood, as truly as we receive this bread and drink in remembrance of him. By his suffering and death, Christ has obtained for us the spirit of life. By this spirit, we are united with him and receive all his gifts. The same spirit unites us in brotherly love as members of one body. Therefore, we all, incorporated into Christ by true faith, are one body and shall show this to one another, not just in words, but also in deeds. Finally, Christ has commanded us to celebrate the Holy Supper until he comes. We receive at his table a foretaste of the abundant joy which he has promised and look forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb when he will drink the wine new with us in the kingdom of his Father. Let us rejoice and give him the glory for the marriage feast of the Lamb is coming. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that you have given us your only Son as a sacrifice for our sins and as our food and drink unto eternal life. We pray, work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit through this supper, so that in trusting ourselves more and more to your Son, Jesus Christ, we may not live in our sins, but he in us and we in him. Strengthen our faith that you will forever be our gracious Father, who gives us all things necessary for body and soul. Grant us your grace that we may joyfully take up our cross, deny ourselves, and confess our Savior. Teach us to expect our Lord Jesus Christ from heaven, who will change our mortal body to be like his glorious body, and take us to himself in eternity. Amen. As we prepare our hearts to eat and drink and be nourished spiritually by our unity with Christ, let us sing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, the stanzas 2 and 3.
In order to be nourished with Christ, the true heavenly bread, let us not cling to the outward symbols of bread and wine, but lift up our hearts to Jesus Christ, our advocate at the Father's right hand. Let us firmly believe that we will be nourished with his body and blood, as certainly as we receive the bread and drink in remembrance of him. The office bearers may now distribute the bread. If no one has been inadvertently missed, we'll now celebrate together. The bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. Take, eat, remember and believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was broken for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. The office bearers may now distribute the wine. <laughs> 